Matthew chapter 6 and verse 11. So I think this is a familiar passage to us, even though we haven't read it in a while. This is part of the Lord's Prayer. And it says, give us this day our daily bread. And then look at verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I want to introduce an idea this afternoon and develop it in the Bible. And that is the idea that sin creates a debt. Do you see in this verse 12 very clearly that Jesus uses the word debt to refer to my sins against God and also your sins against me? Do you see that? And part of the prayer we should pray routinely is forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That is, when you do me wrong, you owe me. Can you see that in verse 12? That when you do me wrong, you owe me. And when I do wrong, even if I do it to you or anyone else, I don't only owe you, but who else do I owe? I owe God. And this is why David could say when he had killed a man and committed adultery, he said, against you only have I sinned. He didn't mean that God was the only one he had injured, but he meant that very directly, it, it was directly God that is injured by our sins. It, it wasn't like someone else and God was hurt, but when we do wrong, we owe God because God is the one who is the author of the law of God. I haven't really said anything you don't know, but I want you to think about these ideas that sin creates debt. Turn a few pages forward to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, and looking at verse 25. I'm interested here that we have translation into sign language. I think you're familiar with Audioverse. Are you familiar with the website Audioverse? Yes. Audioverse has a project right now, this year, 2014, to create our messages in a transcription form which would open them up to an entire new class of people, you know, where you can read them. And uh, that's just something for you to be thankful for and pray about, and it does require some money if you want to even do more than pray about it. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. And at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hid these things from the wise and prudent, and you have revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. Do you see that when the Father was looking on earth, that it seemed good to the Father to reveal some things to simple-minded people and to keep those same things secret from others that were called wise and prudent? Do you see that in the verse? And did Jesus feel good about that view of the Father, or did he feel badly about it? Didn't he thank God for it? He said, I thank thee, O Father, that you, has re that you have revealed these things unto babes, and that you have hid them from the wise and prudent. I just want you to see this passage as it relates to this morning's message and to last night. I think that there is an idolatry today 
that is as prevalent as idolatry in the days of the Canaanite kings. But where they worshiped sticks and stones back then, we worship academia today. We honor the wise and the prudent, and we believe what they have to say. And in fact, there's an entire system built around assuring that they get proper honor and prestige in the way that we speak to them and the way that they talk. There's an entire system of honor built around that. And maybe some of you here are in that class of highly educated people I'm thinking about. It doesn't look to me like merely being wise and prudent sets you up to be uh, blinded by this passage. But it looks like it's if you're wise and prudent in your own eyes. That if your wisdom and your prudence that you get in the process of developing or doing your academic studies, if somehow it lifts you off the earth where you feel bright or educated, I don't know how to express the idea so simply, if academia makes you feel especially on target and right and smart, it has really compromised your spiritual life. And um, anyway, you've seen the passage in Matthew 11. Turn to Luke 17. Luke 17. And looking at verse 3. Luke 17, verse 3. Take heed to yourselves, which means pay close attention. About, pay close attention to your own decisions, your own thinking, what's happening to you. Take heed to yourselves, if your brother trespass against you, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against you seventy time, or seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. This is when the disciples said, Lord, increase our faith. That's the next verse. But what I want you to see here is this idea. Jesus, in the, in the Lord's Prayer, called guilt, he, he illustrated guilt by the word debt. He said, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And here, speaking about what you owe me when you do wrong against me, even though you owe me, the obligation is not entirely on you to, to set things straight. When you owe me, part of the obligation is on me. Do you see that in the verse? If you sin against me, do I have an obligation? And what's my obligation? That's not the first one, but it is one. What's my first obligation in this passage? You know, I need to confront you. I should not just let it go. I need to confront you and to let you know what you've done and then forgive you. That whole process is important because God does the same thing. He doesn't skip the confrontation step in the business of forgiving us. Have, has God ever confronted you? He does. And do you think if you repent of the same thing seven times in a day that he might forgive you all seven times? Doesn't he make it pretty clear here? And what he says is, as you forgive your debtors, that is how he will forgive you. 
I'm still developing this idea that sin creates a debt. I'd like you to look at Matthew 18. Matthew 18 and verse 34. This is the end of that fascinating parable of the man that owed, I think it was 10,000 talents. Matthew 18, 34. And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was, what does it say? Do unto him. Do you see in this parable the same metaphor that we read about in the Lord's Prayer? That sin against the Lord is illustrated by a what? By a debt. Do you see that in the parable that sin is illustrated or guilt is illustrated by a debt? And does God forgive the debt in this parable? In this parable, God forgives a debt, but later still holds the man accountable for it. That is, there is a forgiveness and then there is a re I don't know what you'd call it, a reapplication of the debt. It looks like the forgiveness did not cancel the debt. Can you see what I'm talking about in the parable? And really, the man didn't have any way to pay the debt. So in the parable, the way he paid his debt was by being tortured. Do you see that in verse 34? Now, was he going to be tortured forever? But there was a measurement, and and he was to be tormented until what? Until he had paid all that was owed him. Verse 35. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. Was the parable designed to teach us anything about how this business of forgiveness works? In fact, that's precisely what it's about. Jesus makes the application very directly. He says, if you don't forgive people their trespasses, you yourself are going to be held accountable for an immeasurable debt, but you're going to be held accountable until you have paid what you owe. There are men today, they're not original today, but they're becoming popular today, who can't see this. They can't see that sin creates a debt. And I want to talk to you a bit about that, because if you end up speaking to one of these witty, wise people, they may ask you some hard questions. They might ask you, when Jesus was on the cross, Paying the debt, who was he paying? To whom was he making the payment? Have you ever heard a question like that? I want you to think it through. Was he making the payment to me? No. Was he making the payment to the Father? Well, we have to be careful how we ask that question or answer it. Because if we say yes to that, the next question is, do you mean that the Father needs to be appeased by blood sacrifices? I don't like that way of speaking. I'm actually quoting other people right now. Uh, Does the Father need to be appeased? Do you know the word appeased or appeasement? I want you to think through this term of debt. And let me help you see it 
That sounds arrogant, and I didn't say it yet, so I can escape sounding arrogant if I just think it through. I want to tell you how I see it, so you can evaluate that to see if it's worth anything to you. Most of you are parents. In your home, you set up a law, a rule. It might not be as formal and stone-like as the Ten Commandments, but if mother says, do not eat any cookies before supper, and little Miss Humbug eats cookies anyway, what is justice in that, in that situation? Justice, let me define it for you. Justice means the right consequences for a wrong action. Justice is the correct consequences for an evil choice. Justice is receiving what you deserve. And in the Bible, people didn't have a trouble with the idea that they deserve something. Do you remember what, what Nehemiah prayed? He prayed, Father in, in heaven. He didn't pray that. He prayed to God, Jehovah. But he said, you have punished us much less than our iniquities deserve. That shows that in his mind that he did deserve what? That the people of God deserve punishment. And they deserve a certain amount of punishment. And they had received a certain amount of punishment. But those two amounts were not equal. Can you see that in what I quoted you at least? That they had received some punishment, and in his eyes what they had received was certainly much less than they deserved. I just like that prayer, because I contrast it with people today who can't see that we deserve any punishment. They just can't see it. So let's come back to our cookie jar and the little miss. I shouldn't call her Miss Humbug. Um, I'll call her Alice. I hope there's no Alice here. When Alice eats the cookies, she needs to receive some sort of consequence. Even if you are a disciple of Dr. Spock, you believe she needs some sort of consequence, right? And so different parents would have different ideas about what kind of consequences she needs, but you all would believe she needs consequences. Those consequences, if they're the right ones, are justice. And in that situation, to whom does she owe justice? You know, there's something about that answer to the law. The truth is that when she ate the cookies, she was lawless. And when she was lawless, she hurt society. Because it's only you and her, the society she hurt was quite small. It was you and her. But sin hurts society. Even if it's a perfectly private sin done only in your mind, it hurts you. So that sin always hurts society. But society has never been given the job. Let me start that sentence over. It's not accurate the way it was coming out. The individuals of society have not been given the job of enforcing law and order. That the need of the society to have law and order enforced is always delegated to a responsible agent. 
in your home, that agent is you. And so the sin that Alice has done, as the lawgiver, you have a responsibility to impose justice on her. Not that she wants it, not that she craves it. Also, the justice is not to appease you. Right? You're not imposing justice on Alice as an act of appeasement to yourself. It's not like you enjoy it. If it is appeasement, you are a wicked parent. Or at least you're doing a wicked act of discipline. I have seen discipline that looks like appeasement. You know, I mean, it looks like that the parent is so angry that he or she is going to punish because he or she is angry. And so it looks like the, punish, the purpose of the punishment is to simmer down the overboiling anger. But surely that's not the way it is with you and Alice. In the case of you and little Miss Alice, the only reason that you are the one giving her consequences is that you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to enforce law and order. And why do you have responsibility to enforce law and order? Because society needs it, and you're the one in charge of society. I mean a very small society, but you know what I mean by society in this illustration, right? It's you in your home. Anarchy in your home is a mess. And so you've been given a responsibility to enforce law and order, and that means imposing consequences on the wrongdoer. I'm just trying to help you see in your home something that's hard to see outside of visible things. But who has a responsibility for enforcing law and order in this town? Well, that would be the police. I don't know if you even have a police department in this town. You do? So the police have responsibility. And when they arrest a man, is that to appease them? Is it because they are personally angry at the person? Frequently, they don't even know the person. And it could happen that they receive an order from a judge to go arrest someone they've never seen before. There's no issue of appeasement going on, but the judge has a responsibility to enforce law and order, and when you do wrong, that creates a debt to society because you've injured society. Maybe I lost you there, but it's where we started. Do you remember in the Lord's Prayer? When you do me wrong, do you owe me something? Are you a debtor to me when you do me wrong? Well, listen, when you do wrong, you owe. You owe God and you owe society. That is, if you do the wrong thing in this town, you owe this town and you owe God. And God has given this town a responsibility to enforce law and order. And there is a responsibility there to collect. Now, do you remember what we just read here in Matthew 18? Did it describe a collection process? There was a collection process. And this is, I think our pilgrim fathers did think these things through. They're very biblical. I don't know if you ever read the pilgrims. Uh, I said the pilgrims, I mean the Puritans. But their writings are better than ours. And I think they thought these things through very well. And so we've inherited today, and we talk about paying a debt to society. Have you heard that kind of phrase? Paying a debt? Well, that's a good phrase. You really do owe society a debt when you do wrong. Society really has a responsibility to collect. It has nothing to do with appeasement. But in the universe, God is the one who is responsible to maintain law and order. 
And he, when you do wrong, you owe him. And when you owe him, he is responsible to collect on that debt. I've said the same thing at least 20 times, and I don't want to put you to sleep, but I really want you to see it. I want you to see, at least on earth, that when you let the oppressor go free, you haven't done anything kind. You really have hurt society. What you've done is you have told him he doesn't have to pay his debt. But if you think that what you've done is made less debt in the world, it's not true. All you've done is allowed the robber to keep what wasn't his. You haven't fixed any problem at all by forgiving the oppressor. The oppressor needs to be punished. Turn your Bibles to Psalm. Psalm 70. Well, I might not have written it down. Let's see. I didn't, but let's see if we can find it anyway. I think it's Psalm 72. And I do have my computer here, and I see it hasn't gone to sleep yet. So I am just going to wake it up and see if it tells me the reference. If you see in Psalm 72 something about punishing the oppressor, tell me the verse number. You can just say it out. It's verse 4? Well, then I don't need my computer. That is the verse I'm looking for. Psalm 72 and verse 4. It says, He will judge the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy. And he shall break in pieces the oppressor. There are a lot of psalms like this. A lot of psalms that talk about kindness to the injured and justice to the one who causes the injury like they're part and parcel of the same program. That in fact, one is related to the other. You know, the book of Daniel is built on this idea. In the book of Daniel, when you see the little horn doing its dastardly deeds to the saints, it is on the basis of that that judgment is given to the saints and the little horn is destroyed. That is that in God's way of looking at things, there is a, such a thing as justice. Justice, what is that? The right consequences. Now, I've thought about this idea of, of law and order quite some this week. I don't like a law that doesn't have the consequences built into the law. This is why in our government, you have a penalty clause in each law. That way, the judge has an idea of what to impose on a convicted person. So if you throw trash out your window, you can't be put in jail for life at the whim of a judge. There is a, he has guidelines, right? Minimum sentencing and maximum sentencing. If there were not guidelines, that would put a lot of weight on the judge, right? It put too much weight on him for one man to carry. God's law is, has a penalty clause. Maybe we don't need to turn there because you know it, but are there wages of sin? The wages of sin is death, or our death. Wages are, yep. 
The wages of sin are death. That is, God has made his penalty clause clear. And now if we come back to the question, who was Jesus paying? To whom was he making payment? I don't think that question has a simple answer, but I think it has an excellent complex answer. The debt is owed to the universe. That is, to whom has the wrong been done? You know, the universe is suffering. All creation is groaning and travailing in pain together until now. When Lucifer did wrong, he didn't just hurt himself. He hurt a lot. But even though all the universe is suffering, God has not put the responsibility for maintaining law and order on the universe. Who has the responsibility for maintaining law and order? You know he's made Jesus the judge? That he has made Jesus the judge, which proves that he had the responsibility or he could not have given it to Jesus, right? You see that? So the Father and the Son are the, the authorities in this universe. They have the responsibility. And the, what has been done wrong has been done against the universe in terms of pain and against the Father and the Son in terms of their responsibility. That is, it's because of their responsibility and because they are the lawgiver that when I do wrong, I've done wrong against them, which is also wrong against all. Maybe this is just too hard to see, but I hope you can see it. I hope you can see that the judge has a responsibility to impose a sentence in the local court system here. I know you have a court. I walked by it. In fact, I saw your police car, so I don't know why I said what I said about the police. Uh, when the judge imposes his sentence, it's because of his responsibility, but he's not saying that you hurt him. He imposes the sentence because he bears the job to maintain and defend all the people here. I'm just trying to use human government to really help us work through the idea that justice is not mean. I've heard someone reason like this. They say that when your son does the wrong thing, you don't take him outside and douse him with gasoline and light him on fire. You don't do that. Then why do you believe that God will burn sinners? Well, I, want to, I don't like to say these things, but I think you're going to encounter them, so I'd rather you hear them from me. So I, I want to help you work through some of this. I can forgive you without you even doing penance to me. When you do me wrong, I can forgive you. Do you know that my forgiveness of you is only seeking one thing? Reconciliation. God has not put on me a responsibility for justice. In fact, he said, do not avenge yourselves. He said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. When you punish your son, that is not vengeance. You are not trying to give him what he justly deserves, because what he justly deserves is death. But not only does he justly deserve death, but so do you. Right? The Bible says, judge nothing before the time. The Lord will come. 
you have been given responsibility to raise him up with a beautiful character, and in fact, your punishment of him is only for his benefit. You're only punishing him to help him. This is not an, an executive justice. If we talk about you giving him justice in the home, we need to narrow our justice a lot, kind of like we do for the police station. All we mean is you're giving him the right punishment for your responsibility. And your responsibility is reconciliation and character development. It is not ultimate justice. But though I can forgive you because I have a gift, I mean, I have a responsibility of reconciliation, God is aiming for two things, both reconciliation and justice. And while reconciliation can just forgive you without any question at all, justice can't. I think you, did anyone take me up on what I said last night to go read Patriarchs and Prophets, that section 63 to, someone did, very good. Hey, could, could I? She brought it with her. Is 63 the right page number? I just want to read you something. The Son of God, heaven's glorious commander, was touched with pity for the fallen race. His heart was moved with infinite compassion as the woes of the lost world rose up before him. But divine love had conceived a plan whereby man might be redeemed. Listen carefully. The broken law of God demanded the life of the sinner. What demanded the life of the sinner? Now you understand that because the law has a penalty phase. And what the law says, it doesn't just tell you what not to do, but it tells you the right consequences if you do the wrong thing. And what are the wages of sin? Death. Death. So this isn't a new idea for us that the law demands the death of the sinner. In all the universe, there was but one who could, in behalf of man, satisfy its claims. Since the divine law is as sacred as God himself, only one equal with God could make atonement for its transgression. None but Christ could redeem fallen man from the curse of the law and bring him again into harmony with heaven. Do you see the two things God is aiming for? One, he wants to set you free from the curse. But the other, he wants to bring you into harmony with heaven. Let me give you those two ideas in two words. Reconciliation and justice. That's what God is aiming for. And the cross has provided means for both. Turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 and looking at verse 3. It's chapter 4 I was really thinking about. I did write Romans 2, but I certainly meant chapter 4. Romans 4 and verse 3. For what says the scripture, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now to him that works is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. I would just want you to see that verse 4 because it has a lot to do with what we've been saying this weekend. There is a type of work that you can do that would have merit. And if you do that kind of work, then there is a debt owed to you for doing that kind of work. 
Unfortunately for us, if we try to take that route to heaven, our wages do not bring the results that we were hoping for. Right? So it doesn't work out. We're ignorant of God's righteousness, so we go about to establish our own righteousness. And if we decide to get to heaven by law abiding, that is by obedience to the law, well, what Paul said is you don't understand, but you're a debtor to keep the law wholly, entirely, always. That's not going to work out for you. Even if it does work out that you do it from now on, you haven't done it in the past, so that doesn't work. Verse 4, or verse, we were in verse 4. Now to him that works is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that works not, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. There's a pill to swallow. What do you have to believe in particular in this verse? That God justifies who? If that strikes you as terrible, you don't know yourself. But if you recognize yourself as ungodly, then that verse is appreciated. Verse 6. Even as David also describes the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputes righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Put verse 6 and 7 together, and I think you'll see this, that the righteousness that is imputed to me is relevant to my past sins. Do you see that there? That the righteousness... Now, that word imputed is not a nice word to use with a regular audience because we don't use it ever, ever, except when we're talking about Christ's righteousness. And any word that's used only when you talk about something religious is often very poorly understood. What is your name, ma'am? Elizabeth? This money is not to keep. What I just did to Elizabeth is I imparted to her money. To impart means to put something in someone's hand, to give it to them. Now, I'm going to try something different. Elizabeth? You are rich. I don't know Elizabeth's financial situation. But when I say Elizabeth is rich, I'm imputing to her riches. Which do you like better, to have someone impart to you riches or impute to you riches? (laughs) Wouldn't you rather that they impart riches to you? And very many rich people don't even want riches to be imputed unto them. Right? Now, I'm trying to illustrate something for you about righteousness. Because the Bible talks about imputed righteousness, and then it has lots of illustrations that talk about imparted righteousness, though I don't think it uses the word. But plenty of illustrations that talk about the idea of imparted righteousness. But what about in this verse? Which one is it talking about? Isn't this verse about imputed righteousness? This is when God says to someone, you are righteous. But who does he say it to in this passage? Do you see it's the ungodly? And he says to the ungodly, you are righteous. 
Well, what does that mean? Well, we just read about that in verse 6. What does it mean? It means his sins have been... Was verse 6 the right verse? It is. It's the, uh, verse 7. The man whose iniquities are forgiven, his sins are covered. That's what it means. To impute righteousness, when I say to a wicked man that he's righteous... He's wicked in the sense that he's guilty, and he's righteous in the sense that he is forgiven. Really, I haven't said anything yet about his character. What I've said is that he's guilty, or I wouldn't have to say that he's righteous. I mean, it wouldn't be a useful thing to say. I mean, it wouldn't be a productive thing to say that he's righteous if he already was. That wasn't a useful sentence, but I hope you understand what I'm trying to say. That it's the godly men who need to be justified. That's all I'm trying to express. But can God justify that ungodly man by what the ungodly man earns? No, it can't be that way. If God were to do it that way, the man would never get it. So how does God deal with the ungodly man? He says, you are righteous. And then the ungodly man is forgiven. If I stopped here, I think even Dr. Ford, Desmond Ford, could say amen. But God's word is not like man's word. When God says something, his word is alive and powerful. It goes on a mission. Isaiah 55 says that it, when it leaves him, it doesn't come back to him until it accomplishes the thing he sent it to do. So suppose that you are an ungodly person and God says you are righteous. Well, what does that mean? Verse 7 says it means your iniquities are forgiven, your sins are covered. Covered with what? Wouldn't that be with a perfect life? One that was woven in the loom of heaven? one that is an everlasting righteousness, one that you can't defile, one that no matter how many times you sin in one day, it's just as pure as it was before, so that every time you say, I repent, that God says you are forgiven, and he covers you with the same robe, you can take it off, but you can't mess it up. Have you read that in Hebrews 9? What he does in the 70th week, the Messiah, that he establishes everlasting Righteousness. What is everlasting righteousness? That's what it is. It's a righteousness that you can't defile. So when God says to me, Eugene, you are righteous, then his word, because I'm not righteous, his word goes on a mission and it works in me. You know, it, his when he said, I'm righteous, I was right then, I was forgiven. But that wasn't the end of the story. Because that word was sent on a mission to make me righteous. And what is it going to do? You know, it's working in you still. It's working in you now. When you confess your sin in the morning, you're forgiven in the morning, but the word is working in you all day. The way it says is he's faithful and just to forgive you your sin, and that's not all it says, and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But if you have any experience in spiritual things, you know that one of those takes a moment and the other one takes a lifetime. That there's one that happens right now and there's one that happens continuously. 
That is, he's cleaning you up. So, does Jesus need, or does the Father need blood sacrifice from Jesus? Is the Father seeking to be appeased? Is he so angry that he can't love me unless he sees someone die? Those are cruel ways to speak about the Father and the Son. If you even talk that way about your police officers and your judges, it's not nice. The reason the police officers and the judges do what they do is because they have a responsibility to maintain law and order. And the reason that God does what he does is he has given himself a responsibility to maintain law and order because lawlessness hurts who? It hurts the universe. But is it safe to give the universe the responsibility of avenging themselves? That's not the best way. It, it just leads to more misery. So God takes off every one of us the burden of avenging ourselves. And when he took that off of us, he made it very easy for us to forgive. So that all we have to do is look a wrongdoer in the eye and say, I forgive you. That's all, because we don't have any vengeance on our shoulders. But if we take that, our easiness with forgiving and extrapolate it wrongly, we can say, where is the God of justice? We can deny that God will do what he says he will do. Let's look at one more passage and close. Second Peter chapter 3. Sometimes I feel like I'm preaching to people who already believe everything I'm saying. And right now I feel like that, but that's not stopping me. Because I feel like, and inoculate, inocula, I don't know how to say that word, but I'm talking about giving people their, um, you know, vaccinations. I don't want any, but you need some spiritually. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure when it comes to heretical things. And once you have adopted a belief in the moral influence theory or its kindred ideas, you can fall in love with, it, with the thought that you're okay when you're not okay. You can fall in love with the idea that there's no danger for your soul. You can fall in love with easy, smooth things. Things that rebuke everyone except those that there's speakers who rebuke everyone except who they're speaking to. You can fall in love with that and have a terrible, a terrible time to disconnect from it. It's better to believe in a God of justice even today. Are you in 2 Peter 3? Yes. 2 Peter 3 and looking at verse 7. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, when it says the same word, it's talking about the word that said, let there be a flood. That word went on a mission and it did not return to God until every breathing thing on the earth had expired except for those things that were in the ark. Now what Peter says is that word has not finished its business. Verse, did I tell you verse 7? But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store reserved unto fire against the day of judgment 
and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. I hope you understand that verse. It doesn't mean anything crazy. It's talking about a particular day that's mentioned a hundred times in the Old Testament. That day is called the day of the Lord. And when the Old Testament talks about the day of the Lord, it mentions many things that happen in the day of the Lord. In the day of the Lord, the city Jerusalem is established. In the day of the Lord, the wicked are destroyed. In the day of the Lord, the Roman power receives punishment. In the day of the Lord, you know, there's a lot of things that happen in the day of the Lord. Well, the day of the Lord, we learn in New Testament times, lasts for how long? You know, it lasts a thousand years. From the second coming to the third coming. That's the day of the Lord, and it's the day of judgment. And how long is the day of the Lord? It is. It's a thousand years. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. Now look back at verse 3. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers. That's a person who makes light of an idea. Walking after their own lusts. But I bet you can't see it. I bet you can't see how the scoffers are serving their own bellies. Probably that's private. But this is what they say, and you can hear it. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. Then we began reading verse 7. Let me put these ideas together for you so you can see it. Peter says in the last days there are going to be people that are called scoffers. You can't see, but they serve their own bellies. They serve their appetites and passions. But you can hear them. And what they say with their words is, where is the promise of his coming? They don't really believe in the executive judgment of the flood. And they don't really believe in the executive judgment of the world by fire called the day of the Lord. They don't really believe in those things, but Peter says that they are ignorant willingly. That is, they don't want to believe in those things. You should know when you meet one of them that the Bible has something to say, that that class is alive and well. And though I don't know that I'm right about this, it looks to me the way this is rising is that this will be the omega of apostasy, an idea that does away with the work and person of God as the judge of the earth. And may we all be delivered from whatever that omega of apostasy will be. If you're able and willing, let's kneel for a prayer. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would save us from misunderstanding. 
I admit that you have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. Yes. I confess that you have a right and responsibility to punish the oppressor. And as each one of us have been an oppressor at some point, I thank you that even the sins of the oppressor have been carried by the Lord Jesus. And that you are able to cover us with a righteousness and treat us in a way that we do not deserve. I ask for your spirit to be with us. In the name of Jesus, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.